Thank you, Joe. Thank you, worship team. While I was listening to the reading of Revelation 22, kind of reminded me of how neat it is to have a book that God gave us that in the beginning of it starts new life and um, perfection and how life is was supposed to be when God created everything and declared it good and how at the end of the book it's kind of a living uh, life everlasting type uh, ending in some ways. Um, it's not the end of everything in the sense of the new beginning that will take place after the corrupt earth is destroyed and rebuilt. And uh, I know it was a little bit of a lengthy passage to read, but I just wanted to read that section, which in, in my NIV, or not NIV, but ESV, uh, considers this uh, the passage dealing with Jesus' coming, which is one of the things we're kind of looking at today. Uh, today is beginning the first sermon of this new Advent season. I uh, think it's unfair sometimes that we have to wait till this time of year to enjoy some of the things that come with Advent and with Christmas. Um, we have a tradition in our household that uh, one of the meals we have at holiday time is uh, these things we call yuck eggs, which I won't go through with you, but they're actually really good. But they always seem to just come around at holiday time. And thankfully, my loving wife decided, why are we only doing this at holidays? We can do this all the time. So we have it throughout the year. And there's things about the holidays that would be nice to kind of celebrate all year long. Um, maybe not the passing of another year, especially as we get older and start realizing how quickly they're passing. But, uh, but there are many things, family time, times of sharing, times of receiving times that we can focus on uh, the, the birth of Christ and his coming. Um, there's many things to look forward to. But today we're, we, uh, we lit the hope candle. And that's actually uh, kind of what I want to speak on today. Hope is a wonderful thing for human beings. And I think it's probably one of those things, not quite like breathing or water or food, but it's one of those things that I think people need to be to be able to exist um, imagine being without hope um, what a desperate and uh, uh, depressing situation that would be if you had a life without any hope it would be um, tragic many people commit suicide because of that lack of hope throughout the, the years. And what a tragic situation that is, to have a life without hope. As a noun, hope is defined as a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. When used as a verb, hope is wanting something to happen or be the case. So the, the word hope, of course, can be used in two different ways. We hope for a lot of things in life. 
I know that I've hoped many times in the past that I studied hard enough to pass that very important test or that interview or whatever it may have been. I hope to meet someone in my life and uh, to be able to have a family with and raise a family with. And God has blessed me with that. I hope that I'd live long enough to see my children married. And I have. Now I find myself even hoping that I live long enough to see my grandchildren married. No, it's probably unrealistic for great-grandchildren, but I definitely should be able to see some of my, my grandchildren married. Some of you are dealing with cancer treatments or other life-threatening diseases, and I can only presume that you hope that the current treatment plan that you're going through will be enough to put the cancer into remission or to stop the disease that has invaded your body. We hope for a lot of things. And in all these things that we hope for, it's just that. It's just hope. We just hope it happens. There are still uncertainties in the hoping that we have. We understand that these things may not happen or they may not happen the way we wish them to. Imagine, though, if the hope that we have in things pertaining to this earthly life is the same type of hope that we must settle for in the Christian life or as we look forward to eternity. When the Greek word that's commonly translated to hope is used in the New Testament, it means something is favorable and has confident expectation. Listen to the difference in that, that definition. The, the dictionary saying a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. But in the Greek, it's something is favorable and has confident expectation. It's a different context to it, a different thought in it, in the sense that we look forward to it to happen. Not that we hope it happens or that we wish it would happen, but that we know it will happen. It has to do with the unseen and the future. In Romans 8, 24 and 25, Paul wrote concerning the future glory of one who is in Christ when he said, For in this hope we were saved. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And that's what we do. We are looking forward to the future with hope. But we're waiting patiently, knowing that it will take place. Hope is what we're given by Christ in the Christian life to help us endure hardship or suffering here in this life. It's given to us to help live in a way that is worthy of our calling. It's what helps us when we lose someone here that we miss very much. But because he or she had a relationship with Christ, we are assured that we will be able to be reunited with them again in glory. What a great assurance and a great comfort. Hope is knowing 
that the God of truth, who saved me and is now sanctifying me, will bring it to completion at the day of the Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Philippians 1.6, which reads, when, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What a great thing to have as a Christian. During the Advent, we at times read from the Old Testament that the Jews lived through many centuries of suffering, of imprisonment, of captivity, their nation being overtaken and ruled by foreign kings, many people being taken off in captivity and some never returning back to their homeland. Many times when they're restored, instead of being ruled by wicked uh, Gentile kings or or non-Jewish kings, they might be ruled by wicked Jewish kings. But nevertheless, they were living in hope of God's promise that in the future, He would raise a righteous king who will sit on the throne of David and rule over His kingdom and uphold it with justice and righteousness forevermore. When you're living through the things that people live through in this life, if that's all you had to focus on, it would be miserable. But as Christians, we don't. As the Jewish people, they didn't. They could go through that suffering. They could go through all the things that they did because their eyes were focused ahead not currently in the existence that they are at. Who cannot hope for a world with peace and justice and righteousness? Isn't that what we all hope for? Isn't that what we sing about at this time of year? As God promised King David in 2 Samuel 7, He said, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure Forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. In Isaiah, God intensifies the promise and pointed to the Messiah yet to come. In chapter 9, where it reads, the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. They endured because of this hope. However, they didn't endure just because it was another human being or even a great religious leader that gave them this promise. But they endured because of who it was that told them that he would accomplish it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It was God, Jehovah, the one who is faithful and righteous and eternal and true and almighty 
He's the one who told them this. And he's the one who will carry it out. He had promised this Son of Man will come and that he would establish and reign over his kingdom. And this Son of Man, identified as the Messiah, is Jesus Christ. And he did come. But the good news is that he's coming again. And that's what we're looking for, the expecting the return of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is what we celebrate during this time of year, the coming of Christ. Jesus came to this world to rescue his people from sin. The Jews, including Jesus' disciples, were expecting him to restore Israel as a great nation and rule over the world. This is what they expected the Messiah to accomplish. So if he's the Messiah, this must be what he's here to do. They expected Jesus would accomplish this at the time that he was here on earth through his earthly ministry that we look at in the Gospels. We know that they expected this because in Acts 1.6, after Jesus had been crucified and resurrected, what did the disciples ask him? They asked if he's going to restore now restore the kingdom of Israel. They were still expecting that to take place now. Jesus responded that it was not for the disciples to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, he told them it was none of their business to know the Father's timing, just as it's not ours. It's not something that... In fact, can you imagine if you thought you knew the time of his return? You might be thinking, well... That would be kind of nice because then I could, I could prepare. I can make sure I'm really ready. But if you do what I think a lot of people do, you'll procrastinate to the very end. You won't be doing what you should be doing all the time, waiting for that time to happen. You'll just be thinking, oh, I've got another day. I've got another 24 hours. I'll deal with that tomorrow afternoon. But that's, that's not a good thing for us. And fortunately, our Father knows that and doesn't allow us to know that. Now, there's many things and issues pertaining to Jesus' return and, and what takes place. And if the kingdom is, is spiritual or if it's physical or if it's both, uh, a lot of things that, that uh, can be dealt with. And we are going to be looking at some of that uh, later as we return to Matthew um, I think about April or May, we'll be looking at some of the uh, chapters dealing with the end times. And uh, we'll address some of that to some degree. The important point here today, though, is that it was God who promised the Israelites that he would accomplish this work. And they believed for centuries that this would happen. They believed it because it was God who promised it. And he had proven himself to be faithful and true in his relationship with the Israelite people and his his children throughout the 
ages of, of world history. Jesus came, but he did not establish an earthly kingdom, at least not in the way that the Jews believed that it would happen. That's why actually many Jews today do not accept Jesus as the Messiah. That's why in the um, early days of the Christian church, it was the same thing. They didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah. Because while he may have been a good man, or a great religious leader, or even a prophet, and he was called all of those, he didn't restore Israel. And to them, that was what the fulfillment of prophecy would look like. So they rejected him. The events that they were looking for does not happen until a later time when Jesus returns, which Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians church calls the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know this as the second coming of Jesus, and that's what we are looking forward to. We, we celebrate the birth of Christ at this time, but we're also looking for his return when he comes back to gather his children and to accomplish the rest of the work that the Messiah is, is going to do to fulfill prophecy. The Bible has a huge amount of verses that refer to the Lord's return. Over 318 times in those 260 chapters of the New Testament, and then there are many prophecies throughout the Old Testament that deal with the coming of Christ. The majority of those pertaining not to the first advent in which he died as our sin bearer, that's the one that we think of in, in past history, but it deals with his second advent in which he is to rule as king. And I'd like to spend a couple minutes in that passage. If you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll spend a few minutes looking at uh, a few verses there. Beginning in verse 4. Since I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any gift. As you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's a lot here in this short passage, but I'll be presenting it a little bit more narrowly this morning. But as a brief reminder of what's going on in Corinth when this was written, the letter was probably written around A.D. 55, so not long after the founding of the church and not long after Jesus had left. It was written by Paul to the Corinthian Christians. 
And this church is largely made up of Gentiles, although they do have some Jewish people that are part of it, uh, that have converted uh, to Christ or followed Christ. Corinth is a major city and a region of the Roman Empire that had many important uh, things pertaining to it, but especially as a center of worship for some of the, the, the major gods that were worshipped at the time or believed in at the time. So the church in Corinth is struggling with their environment. They're surrounded by corruption and every type of sin that you can imagine. They felt pressure to adapt. They, they wanted to know how do we fit in to our society and our communities. How do we seem like we're inclusive? How do we feel or how do we act so the way that they're not uncomfortable with us? They knew they were free in Christ. But what does all this freedom mean? As a quick side note, I was taught a number of years ago that Christian liberty, the freedom we have in Christ, is not freedom to do what we want to do, which is commonly believed, but is to do what we ought to do. And there's a difference. So be careful if you're someone who does things and tries to claim that because you're a Christian, you're already forgiven and that it's okay for you to do these things. Because that's not the case. The Corinthian Christians are struggling with idols, sexuality, marriage, questions concerning women in the church, spiritual gifts, and much more. Kind of sounds like some of our churches today. The believer's faith was being tested, and some of them had failed the test. Paul heard of their struggles, and he wrote this letter to address their problems, resolve some of the divisions that were taking place, and answer their questions that they had. The church is overwhelmed with problems. But God was at work. And to Paul, this was a matter of thanksgiving on behalf of the Corinthians, which is what he does in the very beginning. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. So he knows what's going on, but he still is able to express his thanksgiving to God for them. Because it was God's work, Paul had no question about the outcome. He knows the end of the story. He knows that God will conquer. He knows that the believers will reach the point of of what God is doing in their lives. He knows that because God is doing it. The Corinthians have been justified by God's grace. And because of this, They stand before him blameless, which means free of accusation when Christ returns. So Paul is pointing them to the future, which they were probably already looking towards anyway, but he reminds them 
and he reminds them of the condition that they're currently in and the condition that they remain in into the future. They're blameless when you are saved by, by Jesus Christ. And on that day, when he returns, they will stand blameless before the judgment. Paul, in fact, reminds the Christians in the first nine verses of chapter 1 of who they are in Christ. In the very beginning of this passage, he calls them saints. That they're saved. That they've been given the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Reminding them of their identity in Christ. And then he spends the next 16 chapters telling them how to live in the light of this great truth. What does it look like? But look at the second half of that passage again, verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless or blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the reason why the Jews who worshipped and believed and followed God could look forward with anticipation of a promise to be fulfilled. Even though they suffered and were humiliated through the various experiences that they had in their history. This is the reason why the Corinthians, even with the many temptations and troubles that they struggled with, could look forward with hope because God himself has given them guarantees that they can trust. God has saved them by his grace. He's given them his word. He's given them spiritual gifts to be able to serve. And most of all, is he is faithful. He is the one who will carry it out. And he's faithful to his promises. God will complete what he started. We today have the same guarantees that God gave his followers of old. These truths that we read about in Scripture is not necessarily just for the people that it was written to, but it's typically for us too today. If God has dealt graciously with you by saving you, he will be with you. He'll provide you with what you need. And he'll sustain you to the end, holding you blameless because he is faithful. Faithfulness means trustworthiness or reliability. It involves truth, which is a part of the very character of God. Remember, I identified him a little earlier as God is truth. It's, it's one of his names. It's so much part of his identity. We can have hope that we'll make it to the end of this life in the flesh. That we have already been held blameless in the past, present, and future because of Christ's work on the cross, which is what he accomplished when he came the first time. That was his mission that first time. The next time is when he comes back in glory 
and claims the kingdom that, that he deserves and that is rightly his. If you're a child of God, you can experience the struggles of this life. You can look cancer or diseases in the face and not have fear because God is faithful. I watch the news. I'm kind of like Bob in some ways if he still is doing this where he kind of has to watch the news or thumb through it to see what's going on in the world and look in our community and our nation. It, it's, it's probably something I could give up someday, but I just can't seem to pull myself to do it. But you look at the things that go on. The events the various uh, circumstances happening everywhere. And the world's a mess. We had another murder up in Manila. Uh, not Manila, Philippines, but Manila outside of Eureka over the weekend. We have crime that takes place here that we scratch our head and try to, to come to grasp with. We see the things going on in our state and our nation. All the sexual harassment and sexual assault things that are, are just coming out in, in volumes in the, the papers and magazines right now. How many places in the world do we have our military? How many wars and conflicts are going on around the world? The world's a mess. But we're able to look at that as a believer and have sympathy for it, have compassion for it, try to do things to alleviate the, the, the pain and the discomfort of what took place. But we don't have to fear it. Because we're promised something that's going to happen in the future that all this is going to pass. None of this stuff is going to happen in the future. It's a hard thing to even grasp when we're so surrounded and saturated by it. To think of a life in the future that we won't have all this going on. Women won't have to worry about having some uh, boss harassing them. People won't have to worry about a dictator killing them or, or trying to chase them from their homelands. All the things that take place. As Christians, we have a great hope. And that's what we hope that you see and experience in your own lives, and especially during this time of year. The hope of Jesus Christ and His return and what that will mean Paul calls Christ Jesus our hope. He is our hope. He's the one we wait for. In verse 7, Paul wrote, So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That word wait, when it's used here from the Greek, is to wait with eager anticipation and activity. It's not like sitting at the bus stop waiting for the bus to get on it. There's not idleness involved in it. There's activity involved in it. You are eagerly anticipating. You're eagerly working towards the end. We should be as John was in the last chapter of Revelation, those last words that that, uh, Bob read this morning when he exclaims, Amen, come Lord Jesus. He is coming, and we need to be waiting eagerly for him. We need to be active. We need to be preparing. Don't be a procrastinator. Don't wait until you think it might be the 11th hour before you do what you should be doing your whole life. We should be active. If you know anyone in your family who is not a believer, you need to be diligent with trying to witness to them and provide an example of Christ in, in your life to them and praying for them that they might be saved. If you have friends or co-workers, you need to do the same. We need to be active, serving and ministering and evangelizing until the day of Jesus Christ. This eager waiting is one of the things that we look forward to when we take communion together. We look back at what Christ has done for us in saving us. We look at the present for the blessings, the strength, the grace that He gives us to live this life, for the hope that He has given us. But we also look forward with anticipation and confidence to His return. And when we will finally be done dealing with this old body. We will have new spiritual bodies. We will be without sin. We'll be without the effects of sin. There won't be cancers in heaven. There won't be famines in heaven. We'll be with our Heavenly Father forever. What a wonderful time that will be. As the worship team comes, we'll be uh, wrapping up and celebrating communion together. If, um, if you are a believer, you're welcome to join us as the plate comes by. Take the elements. If, uh, if you're not, we just ask that you allow that to pass by and, uh, and hold your elements until we have an opportunity to take it together.
Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. And Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find Thy power and Thine alone Can change the leper's spots And melt the heart of stone Jesus paid it all All to Him I owe Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. For nothing good have I, whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. And Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, He washed. It white as snow. And when before the throne I stand in Him complete, Jesus died my soul to save. My lips will still repeat And Jesus paid it all All to Him I owe Sin had left a crimson stain He washed it white as snow Paul writes in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And we had given thanks. He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take together.
In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. And in Matthew, in the version there, he shares that he will not partake again the supper with the disciples and with his people until he comes again. And again, we're given a glimpse of what we're looking forward to. And actually, in Revelation, there is a lot of description on the marriage feast and the time when we will be with him celebrating the great communion in glory. What a magnificent picture. Before I, I pray and close, I just want to remind you that the men's dinner is this Friday. Uh, we do need to have a good count for today. 